Welcome to another edition of the Religious Studies Project. I'm Chris Carter, and I'm joined as ever by David Robertson. Say hello, David. Hello, David. I knew you were going to do that. That's exactly what I wanted. We're so in sync. <laughs> it was the look that I gave you when I went for it. We have a special treat for you this week. It's um, Australian colleagues, um, Ray Radford, who, um, if you follow our lively social media feeds, has been uh, producing most of that content for the last couple of years. Um, he's been speaking with Ben Banasic and Tara Smith about science fiction, video games and religion. Take it away, guys. My name is Ray. I am the social media editor of the RSP. And today we have a couple of my fellow PhD candidates along with me, uh, Ben Benasic and Tara Smith. All right. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your dissertations? Sure. Ladies first. Oh, okay. Yeah, let's jump straight in. So I'm doing my PhD on science fiction as social fiction. A good point of that, I'm interested in the religious aspect yeah, sort of incorporated within science fiction and sort of um, I'm doing some interviews uh, in America at, a, at the Nebula Science Fiction Conference, which I'm hoping to sort of see how much uh, writers are incorporating their own social concerns for the future into the work that they're writing. Uh, I did my honours on Frank Herbert's Dune, focusing on the eco-religious aspects of that. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I guess religion is incorporated in a lot of different aspects in the work I'm looking at, uh, but so is science fiction as a genre as well. Um, yeah, so I uh, did my honours focusing on uh, origin of Alexandria um, and the, um, the Jewish elements of his work. So I was looking at Jewish and Christian interactions uh, and interactions within the 3rd and 4th century. That led me on to looking at apophatic um, theology, um, and uh, getting really deep into that, particularly from the Christian perspective, but also the Jewish perspective. I My PhD topic is taking those elements of unending aspects of theological engagement with God and um, investigating video games um, through that lens. Uh, so looking at the perpetual journey of, of video games and video gaming as a religious endeavor uh, and what that actually means for people. So I'm doing some social surveys, um, looking at um, people's interactions in the video game space, as well as um, people who interact with religion, whatever that means today, um, and that's a negotiated term, and then uh, synchronizing their responses uh, to see if there are any similarities uh, and then doing more of the theoretical work in the background as well. I, I like it's a uh, it's a bit of a step from origin to video game. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a negotiated step. <laughs> yeah, it's it's yeah. very tentative. I like it. Yeah. Um, in case you haven't been able to to guess, today's podcast we are going to be focusing on uh, religion, video games, science fiction, popular culture, and just the the way that these are all entwined within those who look for them. Or, you know, or, or seek to get something out of them, I guess, is a good way of explaining it. Quick question. Have you guys read The Nine Billion Names of God by Arthur C. Clarke? I've got it on my bookshelf. I've got a big, big pile, um, <laughs> and I'm hoping to get to it. I know I know, it's been on a list of a lot of things to read. I, I have not. No, well, it's the – I was thinking about it earlier this morning, and it's basically a group of monks in Tibet – uh, writing down the nine billion names of God because they they think that when that happens they will 
um, God will destroy the universe or, you know, everything will become fulfilled and then the universe will end. So they get to a point and they go, oh, this is going to take too long. So they hire, a, they rent a computer from a couple of Americans. Americans come in and three months later, they, it's done. You know, they, the Americans are like, oh, it's not going to happen. The computer's not going to write down all these names of God. They will blame us when nothing happens. And then it ends with them looking up and the stars are blinking out. <laughs> um, I thought that was a good analogy of how religion and technology can work together, especially in classic science fiction, which is, you know, where you're looking at, Tara. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, there's a few, there's so many works of science fiction technology, such a key theme. One of my favorites is H.G. Wells, The Time Machine, and just how, um, sort of, you know, he develops this one of the first mentions of the, the time machine as a, a classic science fiction trope and, and, you know, transporting somebody to the future. And it's such a good story because, you know, you have, you know, the classic inventor and he's thrown into this world of these two human races, which are basically, um, the sort of, English bourgeois sort of classes and it's taken to their nth degree where they've formed two different species. So mm -hmm. the Aloy mm -hmm. and the, uh, I think it's the, the Morlocks. The Morlocks, yeah. And they sort of, uh, it's just such a kind of funny little quirky exploration of, you know, how races could, well, not races, but how some classes could develop into the future. And, and I feel like there's a real little co comic element to that as well, but sort of uh, just how, uh, what a good story it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's an, an interesting thing and why this, um, uh, you know, your and, and my PhDs actually interact here. And that's the way that we, um, think about religion generally, um, and how it interacts with other gaming, social media, um, and, and technology in that regard. So, um, yeah, that, that element of religion inside sci-fi. Um, I, I can see some similarities in that regard for Second Life where you have um, people that are creating in a um, elements of a worldly environment inside a digital space. So people purchase off spots of land actually in Second Life um, and there's been lots of words written about in Second Life, probably more words written about and works written about so, uh, Second Life than actual players of Second Life because mm. it's not actually that popular anymore. Um, nevertheless, it's, it is interesting to see um, that human interaction in an um, open space and given the freedom, um, people set up farms, workplaces and religious institutions uh, and they are largely representative of things which happen in the real world or best practices which people try to aim for in the real world. Mm -hmm. um, and I see that through sci-fi as well. Yeah, what's interesting is they opt for quite mundane realities. You know, if, you, if you're mm -hmm. given an option to be an avatar, you can do anything you want and that what they want people want to do is they want to keep farming or they want to, you know, just keep living and, and have forming relationships like you kind of would imagine they'd do something a bit more sort of uh, out of this world, but it, the sort of the everyday is what they like to recreate in those realities. It's things like Farmville. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or, or Farm Simulator. You know, these things that you can get now which are just simulating the real in virtual reality so for me those those elements and stardew valley is one of those um games that i actually am studying as part of my phd and i've asked people to engage with this survey and it's been my most popular survey as well me just want to explain stardew valley for stardew some. valley okay so for those um who haven't uh, interacted with it it is a farming simulator um you're in 
uh, you're transported to your um, a farm, which is uh, in your family, and you're given the space to do whatever you like. You can construct, um, you know, fences and have animals, or you can till the fields. And there's different seasons, uh, and then you can interact with people in the village that is close by. Uh, and you can also do fishing um, and other, um, you know, mundane tasks. It's this perpetual engagement with this space, though, that I think um, actually uh, quantitates a religious experience. But that's outside of what the the first, I guess, grouping of um, religion and technology is that I see. So the, the first one being religion in sci-fi and technology, that, that aspect of creating a church in Second Life is not the same engagement which someone would have by um, constantly tilling the fields in their their um, you know little farm inside Stardew Valley. That's a different experience, and it quantitates a different response, and it's a different. It's it, both of those um, architectures don't have ends, so they're both spaces to involve. But it's about what the player does in those spaces. Um, Second Life is more of an open field. Um, and games like Elder Scrolls or Skyrim, they're closed environments, so you have these religions that are actually represented in those space and they may be made up. Um, from that, we have, I think, sci-fi in religion, so it can come outside of the computer. Yeah, and you can really see some examples of that in science fiction. Um, some sort of examples that come to mind is sort of obviously Frank Herbert's Dune, which is just such a rich tapestry of different religions. I mean, I think he sort of identified himself a little bit as a Zen Buddhist, so you have sort of very clear uh, Zen ideas, but also, you know, very overt uh, references to Islamic religion, the eco-religious sort of indigenous aspects to it, and, you know, so many different examples. And I think what's so interesting as a reader is you try and navigate this space of so many different philosophies and ideas. And I think Frank Herbert really just wanted you to try and work it out. And I think in his books, he really tries to get you to question sort of where you want to take the book and what who you think the good is and the bad is and he doesn't really spell it out and I think that's why they're such good series and the other example of course is Robert Heinlein's Stranger in a Strange Land which is about you know the Martian Valentine who sort of comes on earth and creates his his own church the Church of All Worlds which is sort of a 60s free love sort of pagan church you know which is such a contrast to the sort of religious very strict kind of um world he finds himself in and he kind of creates this space and then it's actually been used and created a, a religion in sort of outside of the novels um Oberon Zell and Morning Glory uh, I think they're based in America and you know they have the concepts they've borrowed from the books like you know the grokking which is a term in the book used in the water rituals they do their own sort of water rituals and uh, they call themselves waterkin that sort of they're called nests that they group themselves in and all these sort of things are borrowed from the novels but they've obviously taken it as their own and they've and they've sort of um brought their own uh, very pagan probably probably even more pagan aspects to it and and created their own little religion i think that's just so interesting as you have science fiction directly impacting religion in that but there's also was religion in the novels itself so you've got mm. these sort of two two kind of um ways that it's diverging let's just go back to Heinlein for a sec because you know writing something like that in the 1960s especially 1960s america was completely antithetical to the standards and practices if you will of the american society at the time which brings us to that idea that science fiction is social fiction. So, you know, he's sort of writing this idea that, you know, in the future, possibly we have 
camaraderie and free love and we're not being, you know, jackbooted into oblivion by you know, fascist governments or anything like that, which a lot of a lot of nineteen sixties science fiction was about. Um, you know, sort of apocalyptic or that kind of thing. So do you think some social aspects of society influence? Oh, definitely. I think, of course, like, I think that's a huge impact of, you know, you're obviously, you write to what your surroundings are, but I think, you know, science fiction used as social fiction is because it's set in the future and a lot of these works are set, you know, quite far into the future. The writers can sort of put, explore new ways of looking at it. And and that's why you have, you know, utopias and dystopias. You can look at completely different new ways of thinking and, and taking the world to a different place. And that's, how, why I think it's so powerful. And because, and with terms of religion, you can imagine different ways of how religion might look in the future. And, and with te- technology, you can see maybe how technology could be used, taken to its very most extreme view. What, what the sort of, as a warning you know, and, and as a guide, that's why science fiction is so useful. And probably with gaming, then you see sort of, uh, similar aspects of, the reality and real life impacting fiction and fiction, like it's the lines are getting blurred. And with technology, it's sort of like you, our kind of idea of having distinct categories is sort of dissolving. And and we're talking about this intermediary space between, um, you know, religion and sci-fi or sci-fi technology and religion. Um, and there are elements that are, are in both. My thesis, it, it looks at the religious endeavor of the technology. So I think there is actually a third category we can look at. Um, but to, to flow into that second category, um, you have elements now um, of technology um, and sci-fi being implemented in um, religions, uh, and they're, they're commonly done. We have the, the Pope app that was uh, launched, uh, which is the Click to Pray, um, and when Pope Francis was actually launching the app, he's he's a bit of a technophobe, um, <laughs> admittingly a technophobe, and he asked the, the priest next to him whether he'd actually done it by clicking to pray and making sure that he'd actually prayed at that point. Quite jovial, I think. Um, there is uh, a Android monk, um, who has, um, been created and you can go and the, the monk then uh, offers constant prayers. Uh, and you have, um, different uh, elements of technology which is enabling people to, to practice their religions in, in unique and different ways. Um, and what I think that you can see and uh, where this crossover is, uh, is the elements of religions that are from sci-fi or from a technological basis becoming religions in themselves. So the Church of All Worlds, yes, is a good example. Jedi, I know that that was a protest uh, religion uh, for the census uh, a year, uh, well, four years ago. The numbers dropped off, but there are certain people that do practice mm. what is known. Mm. As well, Jedi. there are registered uh, temples in the United Kingdom, I sure. believe. So. Yeah, and and uh, the sociological aspect um, of, I guess, our department and university and Western universities in general is that we have to take uh, people for what their words are and if they say they are practising religion, then we believe that they are practising religion and who are, uh, are we to question that. Mm-hmm. So they, they are seen as, as equal footing. What I think is interesting is the technological um, element or the the video gaming element um, as a religious endeavor in itself and um, sci-fi actually as a religious endeavor and using those texts as religious texts. Mm, um, definitely. Especially if we see sort of science fiction as technology itself. I mean, it's, a, it's sort of as a definition you could call, you know, 
fiction, science fiction, technology, just the reading of and and because I think the definition of technology is, is like uh, we probably should have a definition of technology. I'm so sorry. Should we have? Uh, well, I think like definition of technology is the same as definition of religion. It's different to whoever's discussing it, I guess. Yeah, and, and that's the big problem with religious studies is that it's a different meaning to everybody. That's true. Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. Uh, the Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, uh, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even one pound a month um, by going to patreon.com slash Project RS and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people in their learning. So if you can help um, either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website, it'd be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing you this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. Whether you're using mundane tools or you know, supercomputers are creating digital spaces to deal with. I, they are both outside of um, the human experience in its um, unique and abstract form. Yeah. So if we think of it in that regard, so um, myself as a human, how do I interact with the world? And my choice is, um, for me myself, is to sit at home and play video games occasionally when I get time. But uh, yeah, in involving ourselves in some sort of experience using tools, that is in itself a, a technology. Uh, and I, I think that's, that's the, the boundaries and that's all we can say about it because otherwise you get drawn into, well, you know, is a dot matrix computer system actually as equal technology yeah. as something as a, uh, an iPhone today? Yeah, I guess I wanted to say is that science fiction can be used as a tool, almost like a form of technology it's itself. And if we're looking at science fiction like that, it's sort of, I think we can connect, like we have similarities in our sort of uh, PhD topics and mm. what we're interested in and that science fiction can be used both as a guide to these developments of technology in the sense of when we're exploring topics like AI and um, cloning and looking back at the writers who were already thinking about this sort of 50 years ago and, and trying to project that into the future. That's such a useful tool for us. But also science fiction being used as a way of shifting perception. And this is Darko Suvin's definition of, of estrangement. So good science fiction creates a sense of something, a sort of a new reality, a new perception, a new way of thinking. And that's what I think is the key for for science fiction is is um, really shifting what we think and by, you know, setting new so social realities in the future, whether that's exploring different ways of looking at gender, different ways of looking at religion, mm. it's allowing us to really shift our perception and, and grow as a civilization. And that's what I think the key is. Yeah, I think one of the really good things about science fiction is it actually provides us a glossary for terms for technology now. Yeah. You know, so things like when Arthur C. Clarke first used the term satellite, it hadn't been used before. You know, now we are all calling you know, these things orbiting the Earth satellites. But even things like when Steve Jobs first announced the, I the iPad or the iPhone, it was the iPhone, he was calling it a magic tablet because you're essentially using your finger like a wand and yes. 
you know, so you're sort of taking these, these terms from literature and then imparting them into technology. There's a very, um, that, that speech which, um, Jobs gave at that Apple conference, um, and there's the iPod. So that was the, oh, the iPod, iPod even earlier. IPod, yeah. So that, that was, um, where he pulled, um, out the iPod and you know, he's talking about the beautiful cover art and, <laughs> um, how to actually listen to sounds and the bit rate and everything like that. But that element of talking about the finger touching onto the screen or touching onto the dial at the time, so the circular dial, um, and being able to choose different things, um, and then the glass screen being created afterwards. It's a really charismatic performance which he actually is creating, and it, it blurs the lines of the, um, you know, a, a, a traditional religion mm. um, in that regard. And there's people that have written on this. The the dress that Jobs would actually, dress code that he'd abide oh, by. Oh, the turtleneck. Turtleneck, yeah. the black, and, um, you know, uh, speaking in certain ways, no visible microphones, and this sort of um, darkened um, room, but a crowded audience, so you have that that sense of um, being drawn into something like a church. It's mm. um, very organised. Mm. Um, and it's quite amazing seeing that that line of that that technology almost manifesting itself into a religion uh, and a religious experience. Um, Definitely. It's like all the, the geek culture now is becoming, or, you know, sort of like what we're in the realm that we are in, in science fiction and gaming is sort of like the geek culture. Well, not the, yeah. exclusively, but I mean that that people's how we make meaning and how we connect to the world is really changing, I feel like. And it doesn't make it any more or less religious. It's still people are still getting a religious experience. It doesn't always have to be sort of what we typically understand religion for. And I think that's why as studies of religion students, our definition is constantly trying to change and fit into new paradigms. And I think that's what not everyone agrees, but I think that's what's important is to have a sort of different ideas and, and trying to constantly rethink what we think is mm. te- technically mm. religion and not dismiss things that don't necessarily fit into what we thought. Once uh, I, I, I agree. And that's a large part of my PhD actually is going to engage with what um, is religious experience. And so William James actually coined that, that phrase um, and uses religious experience in a certain way. And he's using that on the basis of quoting from people like Tolstoy, which then you know, Albert Camus and later writers actually engage with as well. I actually think there's a misreading here. We, as, as people that are studying theology or philosophy or religious studies or religion in general, we've actually taken a lot for granted and it needs to go back and, and look at what these, these writers are talking about. So where Tolstoy is in, in my confession, he, he paints the picture of, um, being in the well and hanging from the sides of a well, seeing a snake that is about to bite your hand. Um, and then there's this, this little sapling with some sap that's, that's dripping forth, almost a honey. What do you do in that experience? Do you fall? Do you accept that you're going to fall? Do you try and fight on? Or do you joyously eat the sap and, and, you know, accept, uh, that that is going to be, uh, your, your lot in life? Um, you know, Camus and, and, and Tolstoy that are engaging with these things. This absurdism of, of accepting your lot in life and actually engaging with it as much as you can and being the best that you can in that space is where I see these similarities of, um, religious experience of someone who plays that Stardew Valley as to someone who's sitting in the church pews or engaging with pilgrimage, um, and going to the mountaintops. 
Uh, and I can see the same language is being used with these different people. Now, it's not every person that's going to get that experience. So I don't think that, you know, the casual gamer who's jumping online to play with their friends playing Call of Duty or, you know, whatever the, the game is, um, is going to experience that. Nor do I think that games like Mario Parties, which are a social event, may give you those feelings. They may, but that is not necessarily the case that every person that engages with uh, reading sci-fi is going to have these divine um, experiences of of questioning what it is to be human or what it is for reality. But some texts definitely do, and some games definitely do. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the text where it comes down to you know questioning reality or questioning what it is to be human comes down to you know if it, if the book is really well written. You know, you can sort of start thinking about that, but I think it's something else where the book starts giving you religious fervor. You know, mm. Sort of like those sort of books where things like Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson, which gives a good example of the internet, you know, being written in 1993 is sort of the next precursor to um, Neuromancer, mm. you know, to, to explore the ideas of virtual reality and all that kind of thing. But I don't see any religions being made around it or it being held up in high esteem as, you know, on this. I, I think it's up there with Dune. I, that's one of my favorite books. But, you know, that concept of religion and technology picks and people pick and choose what they want to take from it, I think. Yeah. yeah the, the, well, there is curation, of course. Uh, but I think that if uh, and what my study is finding is you ask people um, set questions and I'm asking people the same questions if they're from, um, you know, this religious experience and they identify as religious or they identify as players of Elite or Stardew Valley or um, another type of game. Uh, and we just copy and paste out the names of religious experience to playing Elite and you find the responses are very similar, mm. um, which means that there is something that people are getting out of this that is it is quite religious. Okay, and I just want to sort of quickly ask Tara, because you haven't done your research part of it yet. Like, no. You're going over to America, as you said, um, in a couple of weeks to ask people questions. Is there anything particularly you feel you want to get out of them? I guess I just want to see some awareness, and I think there's going to be with writers that are writing speculative fiction that, that they are trying to create a force of, of social change for the, for the good. I think that there's sort of a, um, a certain, and it's not uh, all, all writers, but I think a lot of science fiction writers especially are trying to create a better world through their writing, and I think that's a unique aspect of science so fiction. Like people like Kim Stanley Robinson with the environmentalist message. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And and so what I want to do is there's a few themes that I'm looking at. I'm looking at AI, I'm looking at um, environment, I'm looking at inter, in, uh, interplanetary travel. And so there's a few themes that I'm looking mm-hmm. at that I'm just trying to see that, you know, if they're concerned about climate change, is that being reflected in their writing? And I think that obviously that it will, but I just want some sort of confirmation that the young writers, and I'll probably get a range of people at um, Nebula, so of all different periods of their writing experience, mm. but that that's sort of at the forefront of their writing, I, and I and I think it will be. And I, that's why I think it's such a unique genre because it's concerned with probably you know the same questions that most religions and philosophy is concerned with who are we why are we here you know and also making the world better and i think you'd be hard pressed finding people that don't want to make the world a better place and we're in such a era at the moment where people are feeling very fatigued and very depressed with the current state of affairs and i feel like 
that's why it's so important. Do you think things like science fiction and video games um, give people that hope, you know, that, that they find themselves doing these things in order to better feel better about things, about the world, um, to give some form of meaning, some form of credence? You mean like escapism? Yeah, escapism, yeah. Um, sort of, but I also think more of a warning. I think, you know, speculative fiction that's set in the future and shows a very, very bleak, mm. you know, where technology's gone totally terribly and it's like this very bleak well we can look and go okay well should we maybe alter the way that we're you know progressing with artificial intelligence should we maybe alter you know in the in reality can we do some measures to try and maybe not get to that place or how can we change the way we interact with you know facebook or our iphones to maybe then impact the future and that's what i'm hoping science fiction or i think science fiction does is also acts as a warning not just that escapism that's definitely an aspect of it uh, from the reality but also a warning in the dystopia of what our realities could become. Yeah. I think... Because I'm going to admit, you know, I am very much a video game player and I play for a multitude of reasons. Mm. None of them are religious. It's usually to avoid other people. (laughs) Yes. And that's, I think, where most people do um, find themselves engaging with this space. But it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you cannot get the same experience there that someone who is having um, a, a openly religious experience mm. is. So they, they can be one and the same. Um, it doesn't, I'm not necessarily concerned or even really interested in why people engage with video gaming or religion because I think that becomes a whole quagmire of, um, you know, thought you know, based on family background, social background, and then you have to almost get into the psychology of, mm. of someone who is engaging that way. All I'm interested in is um, flatlining the approach, so classifying people as you're either playing or you're not playing these games. And I then ask the question, well, why are you playing this game? Why are you continually playing a game which is meant to only have uh, a 10 or 20 hour um, engagement? Why have you played that for four, five hundred <laughs> hours? Why do you continue to play um, mm. World of Warcraft once you've got to the end? You've got your character maxed out and you're one of the toughest in your group. And yes, you perform in a certain role in a team environment. But it brings people back. It's not physically possible to finish elements, uh, every element in, in a lot of these games. And they are sandboxes, uh, many of them. But some of them aren't. And that, this is the interesting thing. There's, there's people that have played games which, um, are meant to be coin crunches, you know, mm. arcade experience games that, uh, you're meant to only play for two or three minutes. And then you give way to the next person at the arcade to put another quarter in there. Um, and that's what those games are developed with. We have people that are playing those games for 18 to 20 hours at a time on a single credit. Nibbler, for example. Not a great game. It's a snake that is going around a field constantly, same type of field. That's not a great experience, it looks like, from a, a someone who stands back. But people try and do that because they're trying to get world records. But they're returning to it constantly because they're obviously enjoying that experience. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing it. Mm. Uh, and that, I think, is, is really interesting, uh, where you can have what looks like a very mundane task and it gives that sort of perpetual feeling of engagement um, and it keeps drawing people back over and over again. 
If I can share a quote. Yes, please. Yeah. Um, so this is from a – it started off as a Tumblr site and then it's been copied across as to a, a website. It's called Journey Stories. And the user Jitterfish uh, <laughs> shared this, uh, which I, I thought was, was quite interesting. It's about Journey, the video game. So Journey is a, a game where you are a cloaked avatar. So you're a cloaked figure that appears in a, a vast desert landscape. And you don't see anything except for a light on a hill in a distance. Uh, and there's very little actually in the, um, uh, the field of play mm. initially. And it draws you to constantly march towards from memory. Very, yeah. Yes. Very, very linear. You do interact with another person in the game. So it's not clear. Spoiler alert. It, it's a 10 year old game. I think we can spoil it. <laughs> The other person that you appears in the game is actually another user who is playing the game at the same time somewhere else in the world. So it's a live experience, and it's not initially clear that you have that experience. Now, Genova Chen actually studied flow, studies philosophy, uh, writes a little bit about religious experience in, in, in that regard, but not so much. But he was interested in creating this experience where you'd engage with users in a very limited way. So you only have a set tone, which is your X button. So you can set off this tone, um, and that's it in the game. So you can jump, set off a tone, and walk. Mm. Um, very, very limited. Jitterfish writes, Is it possible to have a religious experience in a video game? Because I just danced for 20 minutes with a complete stranger in the final level of Journey. When we got to the end, I learned that the final part of the mountain, just before you walk into the light, if you run into your companion and jump, you can fly into the air. We synchronized our jumps until we were floating above the light, twirling and dancing and laughing. And I just, I don't even know, man. I'm crying. So many feels. Carlos G. Nice. If you're reading this, you're amazing. <laughs> and that for me is... It's kind of sweet. It is a very mm. sweet experience. Um, and I have had a very similar experience um, playing the game where I walked and played with someone from the beginning to the end of the game. It's only happened once since I've played it, and I've played it a number of times through. And then you float back to the beginning, and you lose connection with that person. So, yeah, there is this interaction that you're getting, um, which is a divine experience. And I think that is that is quite magnificent for a game to actually give you that uh, experience. Uh, I guess that brings me to my last thing that I wanted to talk about, and is uh, the perception of reality within video games. Because, I mean... That's that's quite a nice story where the reality then is journeys what five hours long? Uh, not even. It can be it can be two to three. So mm. two to, and that's if you go all the way through. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So for that, you know, two or three hours, that's your, your that's your reality. Mm. Where do you see technology, video games, science fiction, sort of leading in regards to reality? Uh, with the freedom of human experience now being shaken and what actually it means to be human it gives people a, a a place for free expression this is video game so the the expression i think the narrative is is interesting which is given to players and and given these choices so if you play last of us or something like that this is a, you know quite amazing experiences but they are somewhat a choose your own adventure game. Maybe a little bit more complex, but generally that's what they are. The experiences where players push that boundary, so it can be in linear experiences, but generally it is in these sandbox or larger games where people break that narrative 
and then exist within this space. That's what I find fascinating. Um, and that I think is, is something unique to our generations, um, now where we're looking at technology in this regard as a place where we can go home and interact in, in those environments and be the best that we can mm-hmm. to take the Pokemon um, friends. <laughs> and that very best that we can may not necessarily mean that I am even known by my name as Ben anymore. Mm-hmm. It may be that I've taken on a persona and am existing in this space and are free to do so because of the limitations of being removed. That pulls on to things that People like William Bainbridge, who has a background in theology, uh, looks at World of Warcraft in that regard, actually spoke about how his sister, who is, has passed away, is passed away, and then creating an avatar and naming that avatar after her uh, and engaging with that avatar and, and imagining a persona of her experience in there, that really opens up the possibilities of um, what gaming can actually provide. Yeah. No, I think science fiction is such a useful way of exploring different realities and, and new realities. And I mean, when I was, I think about 15 was when I read, um, Olive Stapleton, Star Maker and his, um, first and last men. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were just such big perception shifts for me. And, and I just remember in Star Maker, I've written an essay on it since then, but that this massive cosmic journey that you take through all these different universes and worlds and you meet all these different new alien lives have evolved so differently from yours. You've got like oh, this amazing creatures that he creates and all the whole purpose of this journey is to meet meet the star maker and meet who created all this life and, and you get this feeling of this real depressed, like all these civilizations that just can't quite reach this perfect state. They just can't quite get there. And then so you know, and, you know, this big quest. And, and then I think, you know, towards the end, the actual meeting of the Star Maker is, is not what you expected. And you end up kind of coming back a bit disappointed and you return back to this sort of the characters unnamed, but you return to this grassy hill in, in England, um, in, in the dark, looking up at the stars. And you sort of, you sort of feel this also, this sense of awe, but also a little bit of this sense of loss. And the two things that, say, put and gives you, um, you know, as a final conclusion is that the two pillars that we can really rely on is, is a sense of community and, and, you know, a connection with people and the sense of this cosmic awe and, and the striving to know that even if we never reach there. And I think that really fits in well, Ben, with your sort of perpetual journeying and also those sort of two elements in journey that you talked about that doing the journey with somebody else and that kind of, imp- um, connection with another person and also this striving for something that you never really can get and and that's those two features are just such a sweet little reminder of what I think is this profound effect that reading good science fiction can have and probably playing good games can have on you as an individual. Yeah, I think we may have to leave it there. Um, ben, Tara, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. So back from Australia, back to the other side of the world in Scotland and thanks for a really, really interesting discussion. Um, and thanks to Ray for organising. Yeah, and it ties in with a number of our previous interviews. Um, you know, we've we've had uh, specifically religion and video games before. We've had all manner of things touching on science fiction, comics, narrative, storytelling. We've not quite had that synthesis of the two before. But um, do delve in. Um, go onto the religiousstudiesproject.com website and type in some of those keywords, and um, you'll get quite a few results it seems that quite a few of our listeners maybe aren't even aware that there is an rsp website 
Uh, what? Yeah. Um, I know we've got a lot of people who access either just through the social media feeds or on YouTube or through through their podcasting apps and whatnot. But we've got quite a sizable, uh, attractive website there. Yeah, um, worth If you've just been subscribing week by week, then absolutely worth going and uh, having an explore because there's a lot of material and uh, I presume if you're reading the pod, if you're using a podcast aggregator, you may not be re- getting our week- our weekly responses and other features, for instance. Yeah, so you could have so much more RSP in your life. Um, some RSP that you could um, get in your life by uh, becoming a Patreon subscriber is is some of our special content, the the episodes of Discourse that we record, which are sort of more news related, and then. Uh, are you my data? There's a new one of those out now. There is, and it's with Anne Taves, who um, we got a lot of great questions from the listeners for Anne. Obviously, her work uh, crosses a lot of different um, disciplinary boundaries and pushes a lot of people's buttons. And that's, you know, that's not necessarily a negative thing at all. But we got a, a great conversation with Anne, and she is. Uh, a pleasure to speak to so there's a good 40 45 minutes there for our patreon subscribers um if you go to the patreons area of the site you can listen to that straight away and if you want to listen to that and you're not currently a patreon it's one dollar a month patreon if you go to uh, patreon.com is it project project rs i think yeah um yeah at patreon.com and you can sign up there but um, we do, of course, still have all of our wonderful free content. And uh, next week, our podcast is another uh, sort of stalwart interviewer, Sidney Castillo. Um, he's going to be representing us at the EASR this year. And he was speaking with Paula Corrente about philology and the comparative study of myths. Mm, interesting. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. That's not an area we've had a great deal of. Mm-hmm. And um, and good to have Sydney back on, our, our currently our only South American interviewer um but you know he's representing for an entire continent so exactly good on you sydney <laughs> well done. um yeah so yeah from one sydney to another sydney Ooh, oh, we nice we should have we should have said that at the beginning <laughs> we should have so we mentioned last week that we are coming to the end of the rsp year and we're always looking um to expand and rationalize the team somewhat um so if you think that you could, um, you know, move from a, a sort of passive consumer role into a producer role in some way, um, could you become part of the ideology rather than um, an absorber of yes. it? Get in touch with us, um, editors at religiousstudiesproject.com, um, whether as an interviewer, an interviewee, just making some suggestions, writing some responses, or we've got a few positions on the sort of core editorial team maybe you want to edit some audio help wrangle some cash or do some maybe more typical academic sort of edity type work um we we've probably got a role for you yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you've got a skill we can use you so drop us an email at the editors at religious studies project.com and even if you don't have a skill we we, we do provide training but yeah what we what we need on the team is is you know dependable um, systematic folk, yeah, basically d- dependable and, th- and enthusiastic and systematic are the th- they're the three, the three main things. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, yeah. yeah. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. Bye. Mm-hmm. 
The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.